One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. This summer we've been working our way through a series on the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed is the oldest creed in the, hist in the history of the Christian church. Been around since the very first centuries. Um, let's take a moment and, uh, and what I want to do before we get started today is let's stand up and say the Apostles' Creed together. Christians have been doing this for centuries and centuries. So let's stand up and say it together. You'll see the words on, on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This week, as we make our way through, we're almost to the end. I think next week is our last week in the, in the Apostles' Creed. And this week, we're covering this topic, the forgiveness of sins. And as I prepared this message on the forgiveness of sins, one thing that I learned about the Apostles' Creed is that this phrase has not always been in the Apostles' Creed. This one was actually added later. It was added in the fourth century after a strong controversy swept through the church. And here's what one historian, how 
he describes it. In the year 303, the emperor Diocletian, Roman emperor, ordered that the property of Christians was to be seized, their books burned, and their places of worship destroyed. Don't complain about persecution as strongly as these Christians did here. All Christian leaders were to be imprisoned. Only those who sacrificed to the Roman gods would be released. Some Christians were martyred. Countless frightened Christians, including many clergy, came out to make the sacrifices. The emperor even permitted the Christians to sacrifice in mass, making it easy for as many as possible of them to renounce their faith. By offering public sacrifice to the Roman gods, such Christians had effectively renounced their baptism. But, as things happened, before long, things returned to normal, and Christianity was again tolerated as part of Rome's pluralistic empire. And so now the church has a problem. You probably can see what the problem is. It's that these Christians who went out to make these sacrifices to Roman gods and renounce their faith want to come back into the church now. And so what are these churches to do? Can you even do that? This had never happened before. They didn't know what to do. Can you renounce your faith, make sacrifices to another god, and then come back? It was a big controversy at the time. It was a pastoral crisis for the young church. Should they get baptized again? What should they do? And over time, leaders such as Augustine, exploring the scriptures, decided that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. No matter how big or how small, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so even if you renounce your faith and make a sacrifice to an alternative God, you can be welcomed back into the church. Because that is what the church is for. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so not long after this controversy, this creed, which was used as a baptismal baptismal creed for the early church, was adapted. And you start finding this phrase, I believe in in the forgiveness of sins, included in the creed in the fourth century. Forgiveness is at the heart of Christianity. Forgiveness is at the heart of Christianity. If you don't understand forgiveness, you don't understand Christianity. Forgiveness sounds nice and all, but it is losing popularity by the day. Most of us can say, I can get behind a religion that forgives, but when you look at our culture in our day, forgiveness is not always cherished. One of my favorite tweets, I've quoted this tweet before, but one of my favorite tweets, not that I quote Twitter very often, that's a a dangerous place to go, but one of my favorite tweets that I've seen in the past several years was from an author, formerly of the New York Times, currently of the Atlantic, named Liz Brunig. And Ms. Brunig uh, said this about forgiveness. She said, there's just something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. In our cancel culture, forgiveness is not embraced. We call for justice and we don't want to extend forgiveness. But no one is beyond 
God's forgiveness. This story that we just read is one of the most powerful stories of forgiveness in the entire scripture. There's so much gold in this passage, and so I want to dive into it. Join me. We're going to look straight at it and just take apart this story. I've got two points. The first is the people of God's forgiveness, and the second is is the process of God's forgiveness. The people of God's forgiveness and the process of God's forgiveness. Let's look at the people of God's forgiveness first. Who is God's forgiveness for? Church, who is God's forgiveness for? Everyone, right? That's the answer that we all know. We know that. That's an obvious answer. But yet, in this very room, I know that we have people in two different categories. On the one hand, we have people who feel like they are beyond God's forgiveness. That there was something that occurred in their past or in their present that they cannot receive God's forgiveness for. On the other hand, there are many who are cold and hardened to God's forgiveness. And if you ask them right now, name one thing that you need forgiveness for, they would really have to do some digging before they're able to confess anything. And so you have people that think that they're beyond God's forgiveness, and you have people that think they're above God's forgiveness. But in this story, it teaches us that we all need God's forgiveness. In this story, we have two characters who don't seem to have anything in common. We've got these two characters, and they are polar opposites. You've got the Pharisee and then the sinful woman. This Pharisee. This Pharisee is like a modern example of having your act together, of having your life together. The Pharisee has been to school, he's been to grad school, he's graduated, he's successful, he has his own home, he can have a dinner party, he's got a couch that you can sit on at his table, which sounds awesome. He's got it all put together. In fact, Pharisees generally didn't like Jesus very much. And so this Pharisee actually seems kind of different when we come to Jesus. And he seems more like Nicodemus than he's seems like the Pharisees who want to crucify Jesus. He seems genuinely interested in Jesus. He invites Jesus into his home. This is a big step. He seems to have real spiritual interest and to want to hear from Jesus. And then you have this other character. And this other character is described as a woman of the city, a sinner. The scripture is being fairly clear The the original readers would understand this to mean that she is a sex worker. That that is how she earns her money. That she is a woman of the city. She's a sinner. And she's got this alabaster flask of perfume with her. This is a tool of the trade. This is probably one of her most precious possessions. Because when you're a sex worker, you can't be stanky. That's not good for business. And so she's got this alabaster jar of ointment, of perfume to help her in her in her job. I want you to imagine the scene. This Pharisee invites Jesus over to his home. Jesus is reclined at his table eating. This is a, a nice home with nice people listening very academically to what his feet starts weeping, takes out her alabaster jar. He's pouring it on his feet, weeping, wiping his feet with her hair, displaying her love to Jesus. 
It's not a stretch for you to, to put yourself in the place of the Pharisee and think the same thing that the Pharisee thinks. Which the passage says, the Pharisee said to himself, you know what that means? He thought it. He said to himself, this man cannot be a prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. In fact, if he had any common sense, he would know what kind of woman this is. It's pretty obvious. And he would not let her touch him. And I love what the scriptures say at this point. Because what Jesus does is he looks at Simon the Pharisee and he answers him. You see, Simon is doubting that Jesus is a prophet in his mind, in his heart. He's saying it to himself. And what does Jesus do? He reads his mind and answers his question, proving that he is a prophet. He tells this story of two people owing a money lender. One owes 50 denarii, which is the equivalent of two months' wages. It's a little bit of debt. The other one owes 500 denarii, and the way that math works is if you add a zero, you add a zero. So that's worth 20 months' wages, all right? 50 and 500, two and 20. And Jesus tells this story that when both of them owed that money, neither of them could pay. And when neither of them could pay, the lender forgave both of them. And so Jesus poses this question to the Pharisee. And it's kind of an obvious question. He says, which one loved him, would love the money lender more? And the Pharisee answers, well, obviously, the one with a bigger debt to be forgiven. And then Jesus draws the parallel, drops the mic on him. Because he says this, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, now listen, He's looking at the woman and is speaking to Simon. That's communicating something about his love for her. He's, he's speaking to him, but she, he's looking at her. Do you see this woman, Simon? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little loves little. All these things that Jesus is listing, about washing his feet, giving him kiss, anointing his head with oil, none of these things are required of Simon the, the Pharisee to be a good dinner host. He can have Jesus over. He does not have to do those things. He can be more reserved. But all of those things would be, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if you offered me a drink when I came inside. It would be nice if we had some, some food ready, if we had, had things put together. but not required. He's, he did not go over the top in his hospitality toward Jesus. But the woman did. There are some people here today who can resonate with this woman. If that is you today, if you just feel like you need to go to the feet of Jesus and plead for forgiveness, you need to know that his eyes are on you, that he loves you, 
that his forgiveness is great. As your sin is great, his forgiveness is even greater. Experience his love today. If you're in that place where you just feel like you might be beyond the love of Christ, know that no one is ever beyond it. The more debt you have, the greater love gets to be displayed on you. It's a beautiful thing. I would take a guess and think that there are far more people in this room who resonate with Simon the Pharisee than resonate with a woman. Not many of you today walked into this place ready to lay down your life at the feet of Jesus. Not many of you today walked in here feeling completely disrupted with sin, feeling desperate in your need for forgiveness. Most of you today came in here with a little debt. <laughs> Just maybe a little guilt, things that you're trying to numb. You came in here with 50 denarii of debt, not 500. You resonate more with the Pharisee. You came in here not ready to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, but you came in here ready to hear, hear from Jesus. Ready to invite him over to your home and maybe listen to what he has to say. Try it on a little bit. We tend to be a bunch of folks who at least look like we have our lives put together. In our community at large, we tend to be a bunch of folks who look like we have our lives put together. Cambridge and Somerville are not places you live generally and not have your life at least somewhat put together. Not many of us are regularly dropping to the feet of Jesus with tears of joy for the forgiveness we've found. You might know the right answers, church. If I talked to you, you'd be like, oh yeah, man, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I know, I know. I'm a big sinner, you might even say. But do you respond more like the Pharisee or the woman? Because if you are feeling that big sinnerness, you'd be throwing yourself at the feet of Jesus every day. We feel like our debt is manageable. Here's the thing, and I think that the Pharisee missed the point of the story, I've missed the point of the story, and we can easily miss the point of the story as we read this. Because one of them had 50 denarii of debt, the other one had 500 denarii of debt. The point of the story isn't well, Jesus loves the woman more than the man. No, the point of the story is that they're both equally forgiven. The man just feels like if he works himself hard enough, he can get out of debt himself. He doesn't feel like he needs forgiveness. Because when you're in just a little bit of credit card debt, you feel like, you know, I can just chip away at this, I can make it. But what Jesus is saying is that neither of them can pay the debt. So friends, whether you are in the 50 denarii club or the 500 denarii club, you are in the Pharisee club or the woman club, you are in the, the engineer, successful, academic in Cambridge, or you are in the I'm walking the street hoping to find my next meal club, you need the forgiveness of Jesus. They're both completely incapable of paying the debt. Are you more willing to come to Jesus like the Pharisee to say, hey, I'll hear you out? Or are you more willing to come to him like the woman 
ready to throw yourself at his feet. You see, Jesus is teaching us that there's two types of people. Not sinners and righteous, but, but there's the type of people who know they need forgiveness and the type of people who don't know they need forgiveness but need it anyways. Who think, think they can do it themselves, put their life together. Which one are you? You can only, church, hear me on this. You can only experience the wonderful power, all oh, the glorious power of forgiveness when you come to him like the woman. You need to take your 50 denarii of debt and recognize that you can't pay it at all and you might as well have five million. And go to him weeping and ready to lay out your life, ready to lay out your alabaster jar. You know, that was the most valuable thing that she owned. Many of us here today are keeping things from Jesus, saying, no, you can't, you can't touch these valuable parts of my life. I need this to build who I am. But this woman, she's presenting all of herself to Christ, laying it at his feet. And you cannot experience the power of the resurrection, the power of forgiveness, without laying it all before his feet. The reason why most of us resonate with the Pharisee more than the woman is because of one of two reasons. <laughs> one, our heart has grown cold to our sin. And that one's just true. The more you fall into a certain sin pattern, the more you start to excuse it. So if you've got a heart that's full of bitterness and complaining, before long you don't see it as bitterness and complaining, you just see it as being right all the time. <laughs> You're like, oh, if only they would listen to me. If only everybody was a little bit more like me. If you've got a heart that's full of lust, you're going to stop even feeling the guilt of it after a little while. So our hearts grow cold and numb to the feelings of conviction that we have. We just bury them. On the other hand, if you are resonating more with the Pharisee, a lot of times it's, it's because you have the wrong idea of what sin even is. You know, we think about sin as if it's only the wrong things that we do, the wrong actions that we make. Being a sinner does not mean that you're as bad as you could be, but it means that you could never possibly be good enough for God. You see, sin is not just a moral problem, but it's a worship problem. Sin is not just the things that you do that's wrong, but it's the fact that you live in a state of brokenness. You see, friends, you and I, we were made to worship God alone, and your life will not function correctly until He is the center of your life. It's not merely that we do the wrong things, but we live for the wrong purposes. We build ourselves up instead of building up Him. Our life can look pretty good on the outside, like the Pharisee, and be held together with shoestring on the inside. Our lives are broken, and we're trying to cope, and many of us have found more healthy ways of coping. Let me give you an illustration. You have two people struggling with depression and anxiety, 
looking for ways to cope. One turns to the bottle, becomes an alcoholic, which is disruptive. They miss days of work. They get fired from their job. The other looks for a similar type of chemical reaction in their brain by turning to endurance running. One is way more healthy, okay? I'm going to tell you, turn to endurance running before you turn to alcohol. That's way better for you. But the fact is, you're still just looking to escape your problem instead of trust in the Savior who can forgive you and who can save you and who you can depend upon and give you His love. You see, we have crutches that might look better to the world, but yet they don't make us any more righteous with God. We're still trying to escape Him and escape the ultimate questions about life. Because what happens if you turn to endurance running to give you the right stimulus, and then you hurt your knee? You're stuck again. How many Olympians are desperately trying to prove that they're good enough? And how crushed do they feel when they can't do it? Only one person wins the gold. Unless you're in that one sport where they said, hey, can we share it? That was like high jumping or something, I don't know. We have this sense of brokenness that we need more, that we need to be fixed. And friends, you can have that. We all need God's forgiveness. And until we have it, our lives will never be full of the joy and love that we so long for. So that's the first point. It's the longest point. The second point's a lot shorter. It goes like this. The process of God's forgiveness. How do you get forgiveness? How do you get it? How does this forgiveness work? I want to talk about forgiving debt for just a minute. Because that's how Jesus talks about it. He talks about debt. He likens sin to debt. Just recently, I bought a, a car. It was the first car I've ever taken a loan for in my entire life. I'm part of the Subaru Nation now, uh, just trying to fit in. Uh, I live in Somerville. And um, it was the first car I've ever taken out a loan for, and I'm paying off the debt month by month. And let's say the day comes when... I can't pay the debt one month. Well, do you think that our friends at J.P. Morgan Chase are going to say, oh, don't worry about it. You're good. I'll forgive you the debt. No, they're not going to forgive me of that debt. They're going to say, you got money? Pay us your debt. And here's why. They're not going to, pay, they're not going to forgive me of the debt because that means they're paying it for me. Subaru's already got their money. Subaru got it from the bank. So to forgive me of my debt doesn't mean no one pays it. It means the bank pays for me. You cannot simply forgive someone of a debt. It means that you pay it for them. Someone's got to pay it. Someone's paying it. And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. You see, forgiveness is not as simple as waving a magic wand and saying, you're forgiven. Someone had to pay that debt. And when Christ was crucified, he paid the debt. You see, forgiveness is not simply letting sins go unpunished. The sins go punished. They go punished onto Christ. None of your sins can just be waved over. Forgiveness is achieved through the blood of Christ. He, sh he bled for us. And when you understand that, that can take a Pharisee and turn him into a sinful woman. That can change your attitude. When you understand that Christ 
No, whether you have 50 denarii or 5 million denarii of debt, he bled for it. He bled for you. That can melt your heart and cause you to be a person of forgiveness. He tells the same illustration in another uh, place in the Bible. And, describe, and then he says, if you've experienced that forgiveness, you will be a forgiving person. You will turn and forgive others. Friends, do you want to be cold, callous, calculating? Do you want to be the type of person who cannot forgive? Who feels like they always have to get the, the last word in? Who feels like they always have to make it right? Or do you want to be kind of the kind of person who can overlook sins and offer forgiveness? Go to Christ like the woman and throw yourself at his feet. That's why Jesus ends this passage by saying, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are able, and then uh, he says that to the woman, and then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? You see, Jesus is doing something amazing here. We, we overlook it because we're used to this. We're used to the, these claims of divinity. But Jesus, this man walking around claiming to forgive sins. And in an earlier place in Luke, two chapters earlier, Luke 5, he, he says, your sins are forgiven to someone. And the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy. That means that he is speaking against God because what is Christ doing in that moment? He's doing something that only God can do. Christ... Make no bones about it. He is not just a good teacher. He's claiming to be God. That's why the Pharisees hate him so much. Because he's walking around claiming he can forgive sins. And that is obviously something that only God can do. So friends, whether you are coming today with just a little debt or a lot of debt, a little sin or a lot of sin, Jesus is powerful to forgive. And forgiveness is sweet. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon puts it. The old uh, 19th century preacher in England. He says, little sin requires a little Savior, but my Savior is great, so therefore my sin also is great. <laughs> Friends, the, the path of Christian maturity is not always one of less and less sin, but it's a path of greater awareness of the sin that lives in your heart and a greater dependence upon the Savior who can forgive you. If you want to be a more mature Christian, I encourage you to peer into your heart and depend upon him more. Throw yourself at his feet. Give it all to Christ. Many of you who are Christians here today, this message of forgiveness is cold and dull. You might say, yeah, I'm forgiven, so what? I'm still depressed, I'm still anxious, I'm still skeptical, I'm just cold and calloused to this message. And then there's others who are going to hear this message, and I pray that this is you today. I pray that it falls on a soft heart and that the seed of the gospel will come through, that just, you just explode with gratitude and love for Christ. What's the difference between those two? The difference is how much you understand the gospel. How much you understand what Christ has done for you? Some days you can have Pharisee days and some days you can have woman days. You can alternate between the two. But friends, I'm, I'm begging you. 
to come to Christ and give him all that you have. Jesus has this saying, he says, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick do. He doesn't say this, but I'm going to say it. And you're sick. If you think you're healthy, why are you here? Why are you trying to add something to your already awesome life? You're basically already perfect. No, you are sick, and you need healing. You need you need Christ. We're going to end this service with a, a song, and we're going to sing the song, Come Ye Sinners. And there's this line in it that says, all the fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. Friends, do you feel your need of him? That's all he requires. He doesn't require that you clean up your life, that you get it all straight before you come to him. Many of us are trying to do that. It doesn't work. No, he says all your... The fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. Friends, do you want to be a cold and bitter person? Or do you want to be a person who oozes with the grace and forgiveness of Jesus? Let's be those people. Let's bow to Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus initiated a sacred meal. And this is one of the ways that we remember the gospel. And we remember what he had to do to forgive us. And he took the, the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And each week we participate in the sacred meal, remembering, reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for you. So let's stand and respond in song uh, to, what, to what Christ has done for us, church. And let's throw ourselves at his feet. Let's respond in the song as we bow before him. Let's take off our alabaster jars and lay them at his feet. Let's give him our all. Pray with me. Our Father, we, we ask that as we come to you with this meal, that you'll be feel, filling our hearts with the grace and forgiveness that you have extended to us. God, we pray that as we worship you during this time, that we'll be made new with your forgiveness. God, we come to you as broken people, desperately in need of forgiveness. And God, we pray that you take our pharisaical hearts and you turn them into people who are des desperate for your love. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen.